Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Last week, part one, we talked a lot of baseball with Johnny Bench. And hi, I'm Tom Brenneman. You're dialed in. We thank, as always, the Believe Network, and we thank, as always, our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. Johnny Bench, greatest catcher in the history of baseball. But you may not know a lot about him as a man. He's 73 years old, and he's raising two boys by himself down in Florida. I mean, imagine that for a minute. Most guys his age are grandparents at 73. And yet here he is up and at him every single day. We're going to talk about that and more with Johnny Bench next on Dialed In. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. When I've been around you at many, many events, and especially when they have the Reds Hall of Fame induction every other year, but they're different events, whether it's Reds Fest or whatever the case may be, and all of your former teammates, and specifically the pitchers that you work with, I find the whole conversation, just standing back and listening and watching and, and listening to the interaction uh, between you and this guy, Gary Nolan or Freddie Norman or Jim Maloney or whoever it might be, there's a trust. There, there, there's an incredible sincerity to that bond all these years later. Um, can you just can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's it, it really is amazing how much Johnny – as great a player as you were, and you were the best player in the game, as great a player as you were, those pitchers trusted you with every fiber in their body before they threw any pitch they threw. Well, I, you know, I tell young, young catchers, and I, and I said, learn your pitchers. There are three types of pitchers. There's those that you psychologically, you learn to go out and say, hi, I'm John Amory Catcher. We're in Cincinnati. I, then there's the ones you learn all about their the mechanics and there's the ones that you know you have to get more out of and you actually push them harder and i i don't think there was ever a time that i ever had anything but the best for that guy out there to get him 
through that and to make him feel like he was the best and that he could do it and that he was he was capable of doing things and and the trust that we had together oh they shook me off there were guys that shook me off there's guys you know that that couldn't shake me off because I really was in command back there of what their stuff was and how I could get them through everything and I could make them uh get a, a get a win in a game but I I've always felt that you know I tried to think I made them feel that they were the far more important than I ever was. I, I wanted them to know, and I and I every time I see them, I have a, a love for them. I have a respect for them. Uh, you know, there was there were guys out there that you know such great athletes, just tremendous human beings, and. Uh, I will defend them. I would defend them to to whatever end that they they wanted or needed, and I was just there for them. And I and I, I think it's always the the way it was with every player on the team because, you know, the only way you win is that you get the best out of everybody, and that you instill confidence or you respect them to the point that they understand that they are uh, they are appreciated, and that you really had the best for them in mind every time you went out there. So I, I, you know, I still, I talk to so many of the guys still, uh, uh, Hume is here and Raleigh Eastwick's been down here and Will McEnany lives here. And I was talking to Lacoste the other day and (laughs) Freddie and it's just, you know, it's just guys that, and you carry on the conversation, but you have interest in them, interest in them. Mm -hmm. And, and they are more important than I'll ever be, I think. But, 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 you know, one of the reasons you were able to do that, uh, Johnny, is because, you know, growing up, I'm assuming, in Oklahoma, I mean, I think this is a pretty safe assumption growing up anywhere back in those days. And, and then when you start your professional career uh, as a teenager at 17, you know, you were allowed to call the game. Um, I really wonder your thoughts on catchers that have been coming up now for the better part of not just one generation, but two generations, where – you know, starting in, 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 in Little League and especially in high school, really in college, and now with, with, with Sabre metrics and everything in Major League Baseball, the catchers no longer are able to, quote, unquote, call a game. You agree with that? Yeah, and I, but I, you have to remember something. I was a pitcher. I didn't catch. And, you know, in, my, in high school, I pitched, the, I pitched the, the county tournament, the by-district, the district, the regional, the by-regional, and then I pitched the state finals. I pitched so I understood how to pitch. I understood location. I understood how to get a hitter out, what you had to do, so it transferred over. I mean, we had a kid that would catch but wouldn't play third, so I had to play third. And then when I played American Legion baseball, I was only 15, and these guys were 17 and 18 in another town, and they were already the catchers. And so I, I didn't catch there either. I played third. I pitched. I played first. So I, I can still remember in 1966, we were in uh, Clearwater with a combined team of the Astros Reds in the instructional league. And Dave Bristol made the comment that I called a good game. And I, I don't, I'd never had a pitch called. I never had a manager. And then you got, some pitchers, I think Roger Craig was the first one to really be known for calling a game, and he lost 20 games. So I, you know, I don't know how. Now they got Sabermetrics. I'm sitting here watching 
the draft combine. Tommy, I I probably wouldn't have been signed. I mean, sure, you know, they timed me with a calendar. I don't know where, you know, they. <laughs> I remember when the Reds had tryouts, and I went to watch them, and they had them throw, then they had them run, and if they did well at that, they let them hit. I'm like, isn't this backwards? Mm, yeah, for can sure. We, can we get guys that can hit first? And now with analytics and saber, and so everybody up there who has, who's never played the game, I think in so many ways, has ever, not ever played, not even played the game, doesn't understand some, some of the things. I understand percentages and everything else, but Sparky used to call us in and say, hey, uh, how about, uh, how about Tom? Will he fit on our team? I said, yeah. And he, Pete, Joe, Tony, and myself, he'd call us in individually or as a group. And then he'd call us in and say, what about Jack? No, because Jack didn't fit our team. He didn't become the bench player we needed, or he didn't fit into the, the, the mentality of our club. I remember they drafted, they, they signed a couple of guys that we didn't have any say-so in. We didn't even, they weren't Rocky somebody or whatever. And Rocky, first thing he did, he was blowing bubbles and putting them on the back of the hats. He was giving hot foots. And, I mean, it was like, hey, we don't do that here. That's not what we're here for. And he was gone in a couple of weeks. But it was like, no, um, there's a level that, 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 that you have to maintain. These guys allowed me the opportunity. I probably made more pitching changes than Sparky. I I just look in the dugout, that look just at him, and he knew it. And he'd, he'd wait a wait a couple of pitches, and then he'd go to the phone, or I'd come in off the field, walk into the dugout, walk past him, and says, "Get somebody up," because I understood the level of of what this pitcher had at that particular time. I knew who was coming up next, and Sparky always had he one thing he wanted. He didn't want a starting pitcher to ever fail. He didn't he didn't want him to be the loser mm-hmm. in that game. He wanted him if he pitched well, he wanted him maybe a no decision, but he wasn't going to lose because he gave him five, six innings, whatever it was. And I always appreciated that about Sparky. And we had we had guys out of the bullpen. We, we were they were somewhat maligned our pitching staff, but we had guys that could do it. And and I remember when Clay Carroll came over. Clay Carroll was, we called him Sonny Sunoco when he came over uh, from the Braves. <laughs> because every time he came in, he just put gasoline on the fire. He just lit the rally up. Everybody just bombed him. And we built the confidence in Clay Carroll. <clears throat> and we brought him to a level. Pedro Verbone, sure. guys that we made, made heroes in so many ways. We, we gave them the confidence and the belief that they could do it. And it, it just turned all of those guys around. I, and that was the most enjoyable thing I think I've ever ever been involved with, is seeing those guys uh, uh, be so successful and, and the pride they had in themselves. You lost a very dear friend in Joe Morgan um, in the last number of months. Um, you know, for those of us that had a chance to know him, and you knew him on a totally different level than, 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 than 99.9% of the people out there, uh, what an incredible guy in so many ways. He was above and beyond that. I mean, he's the best ball player I ever saw. And uh, we had such respect for each other. I mean, 
it was almost mental telepathy and, and the things that, you know, we believed and respected each other so much. And we talked so much in the winter. We talked so much. And, uh, you know, Joe was the guy that, you know, I was the one one talking to the pitcher, except for Joe. When Joe came in to talk to him, uh, the pitcher, I didn't go out there a lot of times because it just, he was telling him what he, what the pitcher needed to hear. And um, I, I just, you know, unbelievable respect, uh, appreciation. Uh, and then after the game, the, what he did after the game in business and the vice chairman of the Hall of Fame and to do broadcasting the way he did. And he had insight, you know, and he had the right idea. He'd come to the game about 15 minutes before the game started and walk in the booth. Well, aren't you prepared? I, I remember well, I did a World Series, and they, they have, we have a pre-meeting. And we're sitting at this table with 30 people and everything else. All right, this is how the game's going to run. And I made, the, I made the mistake of saying, but they haven't thrown a pitch yet. Well, it didn't matter. This is about, you know, oh, yeah. what the production was. Right. And so I, I – I, I, you look at a game and you're still, you know, wondering uh, about all the things that go. But Joe made it to where, you know, you were listening and, you know, you think it, he says it, you see, he says it, you think it. I mean, it's it was such a great, great opportunity for me. And then, you know, the 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 day that I got the call on Friday from his uh, agent lawyer and uh, he said, uh, Joe's not going to make it. And uh he may not make it through the night, but Joe wanted you to write his uh, write out his uh, about about all of this, and it was just you know just took my breath away. I mean, I just sucked it in. I mean, I, I it was so sad. It was so you know so many tears, and uh, so I had a couple of days to prepare. You know, in and it was the next day, and then then it got to Sunday, and then we lost Joe, and it was. Uh, what do you say about, you know, it's easy to say something about the best player you saw, sure. uh, best friend you had, uh, and the greatest respect you had for a, for a human being. So it was easy to, to, to put it down and it was somewhat got me prepared for all of it, but it's been a tough year. I mean, we've, we've lost 10 hall of famers and I lost my buddy, Pat Berry and, a, mm -hmm. you know, and, and other friends that I, I grew up with playing golf in Cincinnati. So it's been a hard year. It, it really has. And uh, we're, you know, the warranty runs out. That's, you know, it's inevitable. I, I made it through 1972 when I had that lung. I made it through that. I made it through the bus wreck when our high school team had a had a bus wreck and two, play, two of our players were killed. So I've, uh, I've seen, I've been through involved in a lot of things. I want to ask you a little bit about, J.B., your relationship with Pete Rose. Um, it's not always been great. In fact, there were times where it probably wasn't very good at all. Um, do, do, do you and he, at, at this point, is the relationship good? Um, could you both have maybe handled things a little bit different when it wasn't so good? Uh, you know, I, look, I got I got uh, buried in Cincinnati when I said Pete shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I was I was the evil villain, and uh, people came down on me. Broadcasters came out down on me. You know, the guys at WLW were down on me. Everybody was just you know, and and it was me who was holding all these things back. Um, I mean, even your dad, 
um, you know, and it was, do we, you know, what we've had to live through with all of this is the fact that he put us through it, Joe and Tony and myself and mm-hmm. anybody else. I mean, we're still talking about it. And it's, it, that was 1989. We're still talking about it. Yep. And, you know, I went through the year of my Hall of Fame induction saying, congratulations, Johnny, on being in the Hall of Fame. What about Pete? And uh, we were partners in business. We were, he, he gave me an opportunity to be the MVP. He was on base all the time. Uh, we had bowling alleys. We had car dealerships. We had the things. And, you know, it's just like, I think the, the, the part about being, uh, what he did to, unfortunately to himself, which I, you know, the thing that was the hardest to do was to go through that, that he did it to himself Mm -hmm. when he had ways of doing it a lot better. And then he didn't. And so, uh, no, we don't have a relationship now. And, uh, and of course you can say about a lot of people, I'm sure there's, there's people that, uh, don't get along with other people. Sure. And it, it doesn't affect my life because, you know, except we're still talking about it for, for whatever reason. Your oldest son is named Bobby Binger Bench. Binger, we've talked about already, your hometown. Bobby, if this is true, named basically after two very dear friends of yours, uh, the legendary Bob Hope and the legendary Bobby Knight. I want to ask you you about Bobby Knight. Um, In the climate we live in today, JB, there is no way Bob Knight gets a chance to coach in the Big Ten at Indiana, I'm not sure he'd coach in the Mid-American Conference. I don't know if he'd coach junior college basketball in the environment we live in. And, and, and I don't think that's a good thing uh, in, in any form or fashion. I'm curious your thoughts because, you know, look, he'll have his critics out there. Everybody does. But at the end of the day, 99.9% of the kids that came to play basketball for Bob Knight uh, would run through a wall for the guy. But, 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 but it's really a shame, in my opinion. You agree with that? Well, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby once said, "A critic is a legless man who teaches running." <laughs> right, right. And Bobby, you know, I talked to him the other day, and you know, he's not old, not, not great, but but we have great conversations. I talk to him about every couple, two or three weeks. And uh, Bobby Knight, no, because you don't get participation trophies anymore, and we don't have our kids, and then the parents are the ones. That's saying they're not getting a fair deal, and the kids saying, "Oh, I'm not. Well, I'm not going to put up with all this." And oh, you can't yell at them, and you can't, you know, you can't criticize them because they're very sensitive kids. And you know, and I, I kept thinking during all the during the riots and all the demonstrations and everything else, I thought about the old adage: uh, "Do you know where your kids are?" Mm-hmm. Well, who cares? You know, obviously, uh, you know, they're my kids. They're showing their, you know, but they do. Are they really showing? So. It was kind of like, yeah, I understand what you're saying about Bobby, but Bobby would have could have adjusted some. Bobby was Bobby, and that's that's you know why uh, everybody had the respect for him when they had the deal at uh, Bloomington not too long ago, and all of those all of those uh, uh, players showed up. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's just say that Sparky Sparky Anderson left Cincinnati. Why? because they started asking some of the young players, well, he didn't communicate with us. I'm sorry. Just get your butt out there and do your job. Mm -hmm. That's all. Earn it. 
Well, no, I don't have to earn it. I'm supposed to be paid because I'm, you know, I made it up here and I do that. And I'm just not getting the real shot. And they become so pompous about it. And the pomposity of it all is the fact that they really think that they're uh, far better. And they, and they should be playing before, you know, somebody should have been catching or somebody should have been pitching or somebody. I'm not getting the fair shake. And then you get agents who tell tell the player that they're underappreciated, they're underpaid, they need to watch themselves. If your arm's got a little twinge, just back off, don't play. No, I I, I think we we pamper all of our kids too mm-hmm. much, and uh, we we you know you, everybody's got to play, everybody's got to be a you know you don't have to earn the right anymore. All you have to do is just sign up. I mentioned the name Bob Hope, and um, you know, back in the in the late '60s, '70s, '80s, longer than that for him, uh, he he was the king. I mean, he he was the guy, and of course, he put so much of his time and energy and money uh, into uh, the military and the the men and women who were serving in the military. Uh, we mentioned earlier, you know, you were in the reserves. Your father was in the military. Uh, so obviously that means a great deal to you. You actually toured with Bob Hope and went to Vietnam. How did that experience change you, make you, impact you, any of the above? Well, I mean, I had never been away for Christmas, and I asked that mom and dad after they called me and said they want me to go to Vietnam and you know around the world in twelve days, and and uh, I said, well, absolutely, you got to go, and so. You know, and so I go to Burbank and I start doing rehearsals with Bob. And Bob, Bob, from that time, from the very beginning, was trying to write lines for me and our little skits that we did, so that I would be great or I would be funny. And we we rehearsed and we worked on it on the planes. And he'd come in with a new line. Hey, I got a new line. I want you to try. Okay. And you know, we sat together on that plane for the whole trip. I was right next to him, and uh, I, he called me every week afterwards. We talked every week. He had a new word, uh, new joke, or he had some new line, and we would just talk. And he came. I'm sitting here looking in my office into the Johnny Bench roast, and here's Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. Bob Hope. Yeah, Bob. Is that my roast in Cincinnati? Right. Who the hell am I? I mean, you know. But it was just he was so cool, and you know, you know, the USO trips made him. I went to Desert Storm with him, 1990. I went with him, and uh, I've got that up on my wall as well. Uh, but it was, uh, and Dolores Hope and I played gin for 12 hours, and I'm not a gin player, and she almost won. She were, we were playing for Bobby at that time because she wanted my child. So I lost him for about 90% of the trip. <laughs> and then I, I won him back in the last two hours. Oh, good. So I, it was. And they climbed up on the back of those half tracks, and then. But what joy he brought to all of those people! I think the greatest thing was, and then in 1971 I did that. In 1971, I was invited to play in the Bob Hope tournament, and uh, and so the last day on Saturday, I'm putting on the green for getting ready for the tee off time next. After Bob and uh, Spear Wagner and Willie Mays, they were in a they were Good. in a group with a, with a pro, and I'm playing with Arnold Palmer. And what I had learned from Bob and just the way he was, he wanted me to come over and be on the tee with them while they teed off, and he introduced me to the to all the people. 
And I mean, I'm 600 people, 661 people in Binger, and I'm standing there in the middle of this thing, you know, with all of these people, and he's giving me accolades and everything else. And then I'm playing with Arnold Palmer, and I played that 18 holes, and for 18 holes, Arnold Palmer said hi to people. He he winked at them. He waved at them. He gave the thumbs up. And we talked the entire time. We walked the fairways together. And it was we laughed and we had so much fun. But it it made me aware of the fact even more. I think a kid from Oklahoma I already had that, but he made it how important it was to make somebody feel good or make them get that little bit of notice that made them, you know, well they'll all they would always remember. And so that's the way I, you know, I learned about my life. I learned about Arnold. I learned about, about Bob. And, and it made me even more aware of, of people. And you try to be as good as you can to people. And if, if those people aren't good to you, well, just put them out of the way. Just, you know, I don't have time. You know, I don't have time. The three words in life is get over it. Get over it. And uh, you're going to survive. The people I surround myself with now, I've got a group of guys here uh, down here in Florida, and I got a three-star retired general. I got the former CFO of Florida. I got the president of the Spartan Nash. I've got, I've, but then I have the guy who's the the inspector for for the gardens. I have I have uh, the guy who's a lobbyist. I have my buddies. I, and it's just we are we have a rip-roaring fun time. We have breakfast three or four times a week, and we laugh. And my buddy Hollis. We're just we just have the time of our lives, and and I'm I'm lucky, but I've been able to maintain relationships, and uh, and be a part of so many great things and and that have happened in my life. And when people start talking about, well, didn't you go? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, but I don't. You know, yeah, I was President Nixon. I was I was at the state dinner with President Ford in the White House, and then I. You know, I'm with uh, with Governor DeSantis the other day, and then I'm with I play golf with uh, President Trump, and I and I and it just you know, gosh. But then I go back to Binger, Oklahoma, and I go to the community center and eat eat with the folks. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we have a community center there, and we people can come by and locals for four 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 fifty, and and uh, out of towners for five fifty, and you know, I make sure that they have enough money to to continue that going on and. I just have a hell of a life. The number one priority in Johnny Bench's life um, have been his kids. And and here you are now uh, in your early 70s. You're raising two boys, Justin and Joshua, as a single dad. What's your day like? Say during school, and I mean, take away the COVID thing and all that. But, I mean, the boys are in school. You're getting up every morning. What what is it like to be Johnny Bench uh, during the school year in 2021? Well, I'm up at 5:50. I uh, start preparing their uh, lunch boxes with the COVID year because they had to, and they don't always like to eat in the cafeteria. So I prepare their lunches. Then I'm getting the breakfast ready, whether it be omelets or uh, waffles or bacon. And Josh loves his bacon, and then the yogurt or whatever and cereal. So I go get them at 6:25. All the other uniforms are laid out. They get dressed, come down. Uh, you know, they eat. They uh, make sure your teeth is brushed. You get your hair combed in the car. 
drop them off at quarter to eight, and then I either meet the guys for breakfast or I come back and stop off at the grocery store. And then I'm going to uh, uh, do the laundry because I've got to keep the uniforms up to date. I've got to get uh, their all their whatever. Then they have if they have a school activity or if they have a ball game or soccer, if they you know whatever they're doing, I have to make sure that I'm I'm prepared for that. And we have the week on week off. Their mother is in town here, mm-hmm. and uh, when uh, a lot of times when I'm going to breakfast, I'll just say, "Hey, I can pick the boys up and take them to school." because she's going to work out or whatever afterwards. So that's easy. So I see them two or three times that week. And uh, and then, of course, they, they always uh, they always have forgotten something. So uh, uh, Lord I'm, knows. I know all about it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So you understand. I mean, it's a typical – I'm just – you know, I think in so many ways it's a typical father in, in, in so many ways. And then – uh, and Bobby and I are working on something. We have the college catcher of the year coming up mm-hmm. uh, for softball and baseball. And then we have the, the high school catchers of the year for Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and, and uh, West Virginia. So that we have that presentation. And then down here, I have a, my neighbors down the street. Uh, they run a school for uh, at-risk kids. They're adults, really, 14 to 22. And so I have a little golf tournament, raise money for, for them. You know, they're foster kids who can't really read um, uh, and, you know, but give them jobs, the intern. And uh, I don't play golf anymore. So then Josh has a, a school function he's going to, or he wants to go to a football game last night. And he, you know, and Justin's at tennis. So I, had, you know, I fixed him up and we're ready and I had dropped him off at 10 and then I'll pick him up at one. And then I've got to, you know, the normal things around the house. And then usually in the afternoons, we're in the pool for about 45 minutes to an hour. So I can exercise. I do the the foam weights in the pool Mm -hmm. and then it's time to fix dinner. Um, whatever, you know, maybe steak, it may be pasta. It may be, uh, uh, smoothies just, you know, and I just, you know, make my runs to Costco and Publix and, (laughs) and, uh, and then turn around and do another load of laundry. It, do, do the other parents, you know, I mean, your sons are what, 15 and 12, 15 and 11? 11, 15. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do, do the other parents, when you go to these different things, I mean, I mean, not all of them know who Johnny Bench is, right? No, no, you got to be 50-something to have been a father. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, you know, you know, and uh, these kids and stuff, it's, uh, no. I mean, they're not, and and you know, today nobody's impressed with anybody unless yeah, you're, right. you know, some right. some singer or artist or whatever, yeah. or some Hollywood critic. Is that a tough stage, Johnny, to go through where where you used to walk in anywhere and everybody in the room knew who were you, who you were, and now it's not necessarily like that all the time. No, it never was like that. I avoided those things because I, if there was a situation where it was, two of the referees came up after the football game and says, you were my childhood hero. I, I can't tell you. I guess you saw me staring at you. And I said, well, not really. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I thought I had a mole on my cheek or something. I, I, you know, I am, I'm no different. I don't think in so many ways because, you know, people think, and I said, you know, they don't, you don't get on the plane faster. You don't give you tickets to go anywhere. I mean, you're stand, you come to go to the movies. They say, wait a minute, Johnny's here. Uh, Johnny, come up here. Stand up. You're, no, there's nothing. And a restaurant, 
can it can it help a little bit if you call and say, I uh, I'd like to see if I can get dinner tonight. He says, well, oh, Johnny, but and then down here for whatever reason. See, I lived in Palm Springs for a long time, and you know those people were all ate up with themselves. And down here, you know, you'd be eating dinner, and the manager comes and says, nice to have you here. If you ever need anything, if I can help you or something, here's a card. You know, and before it was like you know there. Some people are just so impressed with who they are, sure. and I don't have that problem. I'm I'm really good with myself, and and I don't ask anything because I don't want to be responsible for turning it around and being obligated to somebody else. I don't want to be obligated, but I'll do anything I can for somebody else as best I can. I mean, we've got the scholarship fund, which I'm so proud of. We've got 80-some kids on scholarship every year. We've got uh, we got Hope for the Warriors. We do the children's charity classic. I go to the the I, I'm co-host of a, a tournament with Bobby Nichols that we raised a million three. In the last three years, we've raised four and a half million dollars for the uh, abused women and children and backpacks. So you know I can be of help to some, and I'll try to do that as I can. Last thing I want to ask you about, and, you know, look, uh, we've had uh, some incredible guests on this show. Uh, Some of them have been married for 50 years. Some of them have been married for two years. And some of them have been married three times, and they have three different sets of kids. You were with Bobby when he was growing up, uh, and your former wife, Laura, uh, had Bobby together. Now is this, as a parent, the second go-round. If you had advice, not necessarily for somebody who's going through it for a second time, but, but look, with age comes a lot of wisdom. Uh, making mistakes <laughs> learns a lot of wisdom. You know, you, you, you learn so much. Would you have gotten married again? What, that, no fun. kidding. Absolutely. I hear you. I hear yeah. And I think and every man Wynette says that. Son, Tammy Wynette said, I'm keep on loving until you get it right. So you failed. So I'm, I'm failed at baseball. I failed at a lot of things when I didn't do it. But, so, I mean, it's like, uh, do you have wisdom? Now, I think sometimes, you know, you pick the wrong one or they're, they become disenchanted or it seems to be over 50% of the people are sure. getting divorced and whatever. And, and it's, it's sad to see that, but you know, they're young or they have them and then they, they need more. Their wants are different. Mm-hmm. I think so many people before, you know, there was before in the old days, you had a, a, a wife that was home usually and she was raising the kids and you were out working. Then everybody all of a sudden needed two cars and they need two jobs to survive. And they start doing, and they become, you know, interested in other things, and they become drifting apart and everything else. The, the, you know, you can try as hard as you can. Sometimes it's the school that is the teachers that are putting things into their minds and into their heads. I mean, they come back with, you know, you can't eat this because yep. this does this, and here's what we're doing in the ecology, which are learning great things. And it's like, uh, no, I, I, I don't think. All I know is you give as much love and direction as you can. Uh, you become a, you know, um, I think in so many ways a parent that is disciplined. Um, I uh, I don't have to give a lot of it out, but I'm not afraid to. Uh, I'm not afraid to correct them when they're wrong. And we've become closer and closer and closer. And they can rely on me and depend on me. I think that's the one thing of dependability. But I think we have to watch what our our kids are doing, who they're with, what they're learning, and how much you can protect them. Sometimes we become too protective. But 
I'd rather be overly protective in a lot of ways because I want my kids to, to know right from wrong and responsibility. And I want them to have fun in their lives. And do you want them to be a better athlete? Yeah. Do you want them to be a better student? Yeah. They do well. And, uh, and when it comes time to have a little heart to heart talk, you have your talk, but, uh, you, I think, I think so many things are around the people that I'm, that I have, I'm friends with and the type of people they are, I think is very, very uh, impressionable on those kids Mm -hmm. is they find out really good people, good, solid people and know the difference. This morning, Justin was running down the street just to loosen up a little bit. And he said, there was a car that was pulled up in the driveway. And he said, that's strange. I don't like that. And he kept on going. I mean, it's the awareness that you teach them. Can you at all times? Eh, probably not, but uh, you do the best you can. JB, this has been uh, uh, fabulous. I thank you so much for your, your time, your generosity of your time, and, and having a chance to talk about many, many, many things. Uh, you know, you've talked about it already. You've had a, just an incredible life, and I think you start to go back and, and look at the things that you did on the field, and I had the, the, the blessing of watching you play you know, virtually every day from the time uh, – we moved into town, and, and, and uh, in the back-to-back World Series championships, you've given so much to so many, not just as an athlete, but as a man, uh, and, and, and helping those less fortunate. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Well, I have, to do, I have to say this. I talked to the general this morning, and he's been the head of the uh, Strategic Air Command. He's been on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's flown B-1 bombers and everything else. And I said I was doing a, a, a podcast with you this morning. He said, how's he doing? Tell him that I like him and tell him I think he got a bad deal. And sometimes, you know, we in life have made mistakes and uh, we have so many things outside entities that, that step into it instead of somebody stepping up and saying, you know, this is, we're not going to go for this. You're, you, you made a mistake. Okay. You paid for it. Get over it and let's get on with it. The talent is still there for you and, and uh, to listen to you every like today and the professionalism that you have. And, uh, hey, who hasn't said something? I mean, you know, and done something in their lives. But it, it's ridiculous that, that it's still out there and it's still not uh, being rectified. No. And, uh, of course, you can take the it anywhere you want to, so you'll be all right. <laughs> it's exactly right. JB, thanks so much for the time. All the best. God You're bless welcome. you, my friend. Good man, Johnny Bench. Uh, not a perfect man. A good man. All right, we thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer. That's Jib. That's who he was referring to. And we'll look forward to catching up with you again next week. You're dialed in. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 